This podcast contains sensitive and sometimes graphic details, information, and testimonials relating to burn injuries, burn victims, death, disaster survivors, and PTSD. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to We Need Ice Explosion on the Railroad. First things first, I want to say how full my heart is with the feedback from listeners of the podcast. We Need Ice was featured in the Kingman newspaper shortly after the podcast launched, and I've been contacted by people who want to contribute further to the story and collaborate to expand its reach. I anticipated that more witnesses would come out of the woodwork after launching this series, so when a reporter from the paper interviewed me, I told her I wanted listeners to know that the series doesn't stop with the episodes published. As long as witnesses and others want to contribute, I am 100% behind growing the podcast with follow-up and bonus episodes. With that said, anyone can reach out to me from the podcast's website, weneedice.com. Just click the contact tab and shoot me a message. I will respond promptly. In this episode, we'll speak with one of those contributors who got in touch with me after hearing the podcast. Teresa Roundsville is an interesting lady. She grew up in Kingman and resided there with her family, her large family, in 1973. Teresa's family ties, her own research, and her industry background provide a unique perspective on the event we've all been learning about. We bonded immediately over our shared passion for the stories around the 73 Kingman, Arizona Blevy. It threw us both for a loop, realizing we were unknowingly on parallel journeys. While I was researching and developing the We Need Ice podcast, Teresa was writing a screenplay on the same topic. Teresa talks about her connection to the 73 Blevy after her father, Dr. Eugene Roundsville, passed away. And, spoiler, her father was the medical examiner at the Mojave County Hospital. But after his passing, and because of her job experience in power generation and oil refining, she became hungry to find out more on the events she lived through, but because of her age at the time, does not remember. Much like my own adventures with this subject, Teresa recognized a sense of responsibility when her research confirmed her belief that the Kingman Blevy, the real, true story of the Kingman Blevy, the human story of the Kingman Blevy, had not been told. Thus began Teresa's commitment to tell the story through a screenplay. Teresa talks about developing a severe case of tunnel vision, if you will, to produce a narrative that was educational, thoughtful, respectful, true to the facts, and entertaining. Girl, I can relate. Teresa's project sent her spiraling down the Kingman Blevy rabbit hole I know so well, but it's also created opportunities for her to learn about the event through her family's experiences. Teresa is one of nine children, and her older siblings have supported her storytelling with their memories of July 5th, 1973. 
Her brother, who you'll hear about in this interview, was a victim of the Blevy and a patient at the Mojave County Hospital, where their father was triaging burn injuries. Crazy, right? And that's just one side story of this massive historical tale. So I want to reiterate something for anyone out there with a connection to the Kingman Blevy who may be holding their memories close to the vest. When you're ready, I'm here for you. I'm here to support and report your story in the most respectful way in order to educate, inspire, and touch lives. Sit back and enjoy this interview with former Kingman resident and screenplay writer Teresa Roundsville. Oh, wait! Make sure to listen till the end, because I'm including some audio from another interview with witness Dennis Park. Let's get into it. My name is Teresa Roundsville. I grew up in Kingman, Arizona. My father was Dr. Eugene Roundsville, who was the medical examiner for Mojave County, at the time of the incident, and was also called to do help with triage when the bloody happened. So he had, you know, intimate involvement in the role of what the hospital played uh, at the time of the incident. At present, I am actually work as an engineering assistant for a, uh, I, I will not disclose the name of the company, but I have a combined 16 years of operations experience, both in power generation and oil refining. So when you talked about the operating and, and your job, that is what inspired the screenplay? The idea came to me when I was I was working at the, the refinery in Northern California and I was working the night shift. And the person that I was relieving, while I, I liked him, I, I liked him as a person. I thought he was, a, he was a seasoned operator. But one of the things that I had noticed is that when you, you, know, you go around after somebody who has worked and you kind of, you can see whether or not somebody takes shortcuts or does things properly. And as I was conducting my rounds, I noticed that he left his remnants of his samples in the sample station. And that's a no-no. And it really leaves me kind of frustrated because what it does is it demonstrates to me how complacency can get can set into a situation. Now, I'm not saying that he is complacent. He's not. Like I said, he's a very capable operator and a good operator at that. But I found myself extrapolating on this bigger thing of it's difficult to be working in this environment and how hard it is to have to be a hundred percent all the time. Working in this environment, it's a very, very hazardous place to work. The product that you are producing is extremely volatile byproducts of that process that are extremely dangerous and so if you're not bringing 100% diligence all the time, it's just too easy for mistakes to happen. It really set in motion this thought in my mind of we've come to rely on the safety of our personal protection equipment, the, the safety valves that we have on the, on the vessels, the, the monitors that we use, but we still, even with those safety protections that we have, we still have to be diligent because people have lost their lives in order for us to be working in this environment as safely as we possibly can. And we should never forget that. And the image that I had in my head was an image of my brother 
sitting in the hospital in the in the hallway because of that vivid image he he told me of just being there injured and just being witness to the the catastrophic thing that happens when something even when you're doing the best you can an accident can happen. I started thinking about this and I started going, yeah, I don't think there's ever been anything written about this. There have been there. I don't think there's ever been a book that was written about it. And I know for sure there was never a movie about it. And I thought, well, how come this story hasn't been told? And if, and if the story has been told, how come I've never seen anything about it? Right. I started doing some research and I realized I'm like, well, why don't you tell the story? And that's when I kind of started going, well, okay, well, how do I do that? You're putting, you're putting something out there in the public for people to experience. And I think I have a responsibility if I'm going to do that, perhaps to find a way to maintain people's privacy and integrity and yet still tell a, a story and a narrative that they feel comfortable with. So I kind of want to remind the audience that we're talking about people's lives. They're still out there. They're listening. Lend them your support. You've heard about this, that this touched you. If you get in a conversation with me, you don't have to worry. I mean, this is not some creepy TMZ person, you know, (laughs) hunting you down, (laughs) asking your deepest and darkest. Right. Yeah. So your father yeah. disclosed some of his memories to you as uh, when he was alive and, and uh, as you grew a relationship with him. It was something that was probably very difficult for any of us to to share. It was not something that he talked about a lot. My oldest brother also was down off of what would have been Route 66 or Andy Devine Avenue at that time. And he he spent several hours in the hospital that day because he got second degree burns on his arms because he was so close to the the explosion. He remembers that day. He remembers. He remembers seeing my dad at the ER, you know, my dad looking at him, making sure he was okay. He does recall sitting in the hospital, the in the emergency room or in a hallway, and really just being exposed to the amount of people who just had horrible burns. It really, I think that is something that has been sealed in his memory. And it's something that's probably very difficult for him to talk about. Did he tell you what he was doing when the bloody occurred? Yes, he was apparently him and one of his friends, they went to, it's, it's not even around anymore, but an old chain restaurant off of Route 66. And apparently he was going for a job interview and they went to get some, like some tacos and he accidentally spilled like taco sauce on his shirt. And he's like, well, I can't wear this. I'm going to go either go home and change or I'm going to go get a new shirt. And he just so happened to be riding his dirt bike and he's I think he he saw the commotion that was going on so he was part of that 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 crowd that was there and and then when it exploded he he and his friend jumped behind a truck but my brother got burns on his arms because for you know covering his face his friend actually fared worse because he was wearing a, a, a lighter shirt what ended up happening after that was they they managed to get a ride to the hospital 
Then from there, the hospital was just inundated with with people with injuries from from you know from the firefighters to the people who were um, you know had gathered around in the crowd, and so it just he he just spent a good portion of that day just sitting there waiting waiting a to get picked up and two just being treated for his his in, injuries what a, i mean what a story in itself he's a yeah. young kid at the time you get to the hospital and he is he's in a triage situation and he he's he's probably thinking wow this is bad i got to get treated and there he sees people injuries that i want to be respectful but you know walking zombies i know we're both so hooked on this story and we dissect and analyze. And I don't think our minds get carried away because it was so morbid, chaotic, tragic. It is. Yeah. I look at situations like this. It really demonstrates the heroism of people. The people in this town just, they they rose to the occasion. They did what they needed to do. And it, it just, it's a testament to the strength of the people. And when something like this happens, you you demonstrate how you rise to the occasion. When I spoke with the miner and the reporter was kind of asking me, why are you doing this? What do you want people to get out of this? And, you know, I tried to say to her that life in Kingman or life in America or anywhere when the Blevy occurred was was definitely different. You know, come be sure to come home when the street lights are turned on. Yeah. Oh, the door is open, the, the front porch light is on, or, you know, or whatever the customs were. You know, now it's like everyone's so overly cautious, I would say. And also when it comes to jumping in and lending a hand, you know, you see someone on the side of the road with a busted tire. I think a lot of people don't pull over to help. Of course, and for women, you know, you know, our fathers both probably taught us stranger danger. And I would like to, to, I would like people to be inspired because in chaos, in tragedy, I think it is human nature to want to help you. And especially if you're in the midst of it, you do get that adrenaline rush and and you do what you can do so i would not that i want people running into the fire but where you can lend a hand and at its simplest form when you can lend a smile or a conversation i would like people to take that away right to not fear situations like that it's funny because before we were before the call i was thinking about well what was going on back in the 60s and 70s at the time that would make Kingman such a desirable place to be. And and I think that if you look back at at, at the time that we were dealing with then, you know, you you did have a lot of a lot of changes were happening in the culture of, of America. Within the 60s, you had three prominent people assassinated, the Kennedy brothers and Martin Luther King. You had the Summer of Love, you had the Vietnam War, you had Nixon as the president, and then the Watergate situation. So in the midst of this chaos that was happening in our world, you have this small little town that was still maybe holding on to a sense of security. Of I know that I couldn't do anything without somebody knowing who my dad was and somebody telling me, wait till you, you know, your dad's not going to be happy when you get home, you know, stuff like that. And so it was a different time in a small town where I think there still was a, a sense of 
community and a sense of being part of something. That's probably one of the reasons why many of the the firefighters who were there that day, most of them were volunteers. And a lot of them really just, you know, they perhaps embraced the sense of community that they found within their firefighting family, but also just, you know, giving them a sense of purpose in building a town that they were living in. Absolutely. What do you recall about growing up there and possibly what the town did with the Blevy? Do you remember anything post-Blevy as you were growing up there, how the town maybe adjusted or memorialized or the memories that my mom had wasn't so much of that day, but was of the day before, the July 4th holiday. And she recalls just what a wonderful day July 4th was. My dad at the time had one of those video, I think one of those eight millimeter video cameras. And, and we have video footage of my brothers and sisters on their horses in the in the parade for July 4th. Really? Oh, how yeah. wonderful. And my, my brother Matthew is has done a, a tremendous amount of work in trying to preserve all of those all of those memories. And one of the videos that shows my sister waving at my dad and was my sister Yvonne. And so I think that that memory that my mom had was just something that really cemented in her mind of just what a wonderful day July 4th was for her. And, and it's and it's tough because she had nine children at that time that were under the age of like 14. So I cannot imagine the chaos in, in our, I mean, I can't imagine the chaos because I grew up in it, but I just, in my mind, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, what that day must have been like. But I think it was something that was a very memorable experience for them and for my brothers and sisters. And I do want to get into the story that was most powerful to you throughout your research or interviews. The story that kind of resonated most with me with the with the Blevy was the reporter Dan Cole. Um, and I think you and I share that we we both kind of have this like this his his story was a powerful story. Uh, and same to me. He's he's graphic. He he was he was definitely there. He was He's the citizen that we want everyone to be. Right. Dan Cole, who was the reporter that I believe was was told, hey, go go check this out. And it sounds like he was able to kind of get himself close enough to see what was going on. But then once the explosion happened, realized that he was the one person who could get these people out of there. And what really just was so deeply touching to me was that the, one of the first people he runs into is Chris Sanders. And it, it seemed as though Sanders was just adamant, adamant at, at helping his fallen brothers and saying, we need to get them help. And I think Dan Cole's reporting was, I just wanted to get this guy in the hospital, get him to the hospital. And this and Sanders was just, no, these guys are worse off than I am. And Chris Sanders was burned almost a hundred percent of his body. I mean, the, I cannot imagine the amount of adrenaline and strength it took for him to just get these guys into the, the ambulance and get him to a point where he was willing to go with them. Just Teresa, I love you because <laughs> one of the things in that article, which again, it melts me, is 
he wanted the other men helped first. He was yes. probably burned the worst. Yes. He gets these guys to the hospital. His description of what that experience was like on the way is just heart-wrenching. Once he gets to the hospital, he is just overwhelmed by what I think he, what he saw. And one of the things he did, I it's, it's my understanding based on what I remember of the article, he literally just walks outside, goes to the bushes and throws up. Oh, wow. And gets himself puts gets himself like back together and goes back to the ambulance and goes back to the job site or goes back to the the the, the explosion That's right. site and picks up more people. He can't remember how many trips he made. Exactly. What do you want people to get out of this project? I want this to be a project that sets a, a tone of small town community and and how these you know unlikely people rise to the occasion and and really despite maybe their their belief that they can't do it. Yes, I focus on the firefighters, but I think the people who had a much more compelling story were not necessarily the firefighters. It was pe- members of the community who who kind of saw the incident happening and and became the people who helped save the firefighters. That concludes my interview with Teresa, and I promised you a little bonus interview. You're about to hear from Kingman Blevy witness Dennis Park. Dennis called me up just days after I'd spoken with Teresa, and I was caught off guard. Usually, I steer witnesses to a future scheduled Zoom call, but Dennis, an 83-year-old good old boy, just went right into it. It was like, Hi, Meg. My name's Dennis Park, and I've lived in Kingman for 50 years. And on that day in 1973, I was right across the street from the explosion. And So if you could have seen me in that moment, cradling the phone on my shoulder and running around my living room trying to figure out how to record the conversation while he's diving into his testimonial, ugh. Sometimes you just don't want to interrupt or put off someone who is ready and willing to tell their story. The original audio wasn't usable. So his testimonial has been read, but word for word. Let's get into it. Well, I was working for the phone company back then, and there was a little truck stop there on the same side of the road as that propane tank, and I was parked across the street, kind of like watching the flames, you know. And there were two girls that I knew that pulled up beside me in their car. And I spoke to them for a minute and I said, you know what, girls, we better get out of here. That thing's going to blow and we have no idea which way it's going to go. They said, I think you're right. And they took off. That's about the time it blew. I was sitting in my truck and didn't know what to do. So I just laid down in my seat and covered myself with a cushion I had for any debris that might come through the window. Then I heard someone screaming, so I raised up and looked out my windshield, and there was a man running in front of my truck, and the back of his shirt was on fire. I don't know who he was or how far he went or what, how bad he got burned. And so then I started my truck up to get out of there because there were other propane tanks around there, you know, and I didn't know what they were going to do. So I got out of there, and at that time, they were broadcasting everything that was going on, you know, locally on the radio. 
But after that tank blew up, it blew down the railroad tracks. You know, it didn't go up. It kind of, well, it followed the railroad tracks. And my girlfriend, at the time, she's been my wife for over 48 years, was working at a hotel there, and it landed pretty close within the vicinity of the hotel. She heard the noise and everything, but years later, uh, five or six years later, I was at an airport doing some work on the phones out there, and I found that tank. It was laying out there. They had moved it out there, and it was just twisted like someone had crushed an aluminum can, and it was real thick metal, and it just amazed me. I had a friend here named Scott McCoy, and he got burned real bad on his back because he was out there taking pictures of it. And I also remember there was a wrecking yard and not too far from that propane tank, and it had caught some of that on fire. And some of the planes, uh, the fire planes came in and brought this fire retardant. It hit the guy that owned the wrecking yard or junkyard or whatever it was. He was on the forklift out there moving stuff, and they knocked him off with that fire retardant. He just got blasted with it. I've been here, it'll be 50 years this December the 18th. I moved here December of 72 when I was working for the phone company. And, you know, shortly after that was July the 5th when it happened. So I'd only been here about six months. I didn't know or I wasn't close with any of the firefighters or volunteers back then. I knew Lee Williams. He was the principal of the school. And it was something like five years after I got my house here in Kingman, it caught on fire. I was home and my neighbor came over knocking down the back door and he had to go through a couple dogs to get to my door and he was hollering, get out, get out, your house is on fire. You know, we had four kids, so we got them up and into the vehicle and I started fighting the fire with my water hose and up and down the ladder. Then the fire blew, blew, blew out the windows and I was on the roof and I jumped off, broke my ankle, but then the fire department got there and I let them take over. But I love it here. I loved it more when it was a small town, but I love the desert. I've been a desert rat all my life. Well, there you have it, Kingman. Your very own desert rat, Dennis Park. If you've come this far into the We Need Ice podcast, I know you're enjoying this true story. WeNeedIce.com has everything you could want to continue your journey into the 73 Kingman Blevy. Show your support with the purchase of one of our premium t-shirts. Four designs to choose from. My favorite has the We Need Ice Firefighters Mask logo encircled with the phrase, Not all heroes wear capes, some wear masks. Each design clearly backs the firefighting industry, so wear them proudly. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast. Written reviews especially really help in expanding the reach of this true story. Till next time.